Love Pace Line is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash Pace Line to support the show and see if you qualify. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. On this episode of The Pace Line, Fatty leads us out with the ride that changed everything. I knew that I would be buying clipless pedals, and I knew I'd be buying a Camelback, and I knew that my subscription to Rollerblade Magazine was going to lapse. (laughs) And Patrick gets with the fit chick, Celine Yeager. What would you single out as the hardest thing you've done? Kona was probably one of the mentally hardest things I've done. Um, Cape Epic was super hard. A lot of those stage races are obviously very hard. I've, I've, I've done a, a bunch of them. Uh, honestly, Dirty Kanza is the only thing that I have ever really wanted to quit. Line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Hottie and Fatty bringing you the official podcast of Red Kite Prayer. Except no substitutes. Find us there on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We are not that fussy, guys. This is episode 107 of the Pace Line. Hottie, RKP contributor and Pace Line voice of reason. How's the writing going, man? How's the writing going? Flats. Yeah. <laughs> That's how they're going. You too? Yes, I'm, I'm paying up. You know, you kind of go through long stretches where you get no flats, and now I've I got one uh, just before the podcast, riding home. There I was, up my little trail. I have this little bluff trail I ride on quite a bit on my uh, tubeless tires coming home from work, and psh, right out the back, here it comes. I'm, I'm actually trying some new, well, it's not new. It's new for stands. They have a race sealant now. Um, it's got more substance i don't know what they've got in there but it's got more solidity to it you know so when you get a good puncture it it rushes to the hole a little bit better and plug it'll plug up bigger holes it's weightier weighs a little bit more so i gave it its first go i got its first test run and it it did the job i got home i got home in time for the podcast i could still be down there right now uh fixing fixing a tire so but I've wow. had I've had a run of flats, you know, and every everyone. It's not to complain, but everyone gets these. Mrs. Hottie was getting flats. I was fixing her tires a bunch, and I've had a bunch. They do come in twos and threes, don't they? It's mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I I flatted on Saturday going across railroad tracks, uh, and did not have any magical stand sealant, but I did have a goo and uh, sucked down the goo and used the packet to uh, patch over where the uh, where the very long uh, side uh, sidewall tear was, I would estimate it was about the entire length of the sidewall. You know, I mean, about three quarters of an inch. So, um, I was pretty I was pretty pleased with my MacGyver solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so was Goo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they should be. Uh, they should be. Yeah. Uh, so, Patrick, publisher of RKP. Yeah. How did your race go last weekend, man? Um. My legs still haven't recovered. <laughs> it was hard. That was the whole hardest opening 15 miles of any event I can remember in my life. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, what was just, so hard about it? Well, you start climbing 100 meters after the start. And sure, initially the climb's only 8%, but within about another 100 meters, it was 12%. And it got steeper from there. And so most of the opening... Uh, 15 miles was climbing. There were two short descents in there. It, it just stupidly steep climbs the whole day. Um, <laughs> it was like a 72 mile ride, uh, or race quote unquote. Um, and man, it was, it was just crazily difficult. Um, and I'm, I'm not climbing well, so yeah, big day. So you're going to do it again next year? Well, duh. Of course I am. <laughs> what else Already would I do with plans. myself? <laughs> That's right. And I am fatty. I I had to think for a sec. Who am I? 
Oh, I mean, hey, we need more caffeine here on this podcast. I got a new bike last weekend, guys, and I'm not going to go into it too deep this episode, except to say it is a 2018 Specialized Epic S-Works set up with XT DI2 drivetrain as well as XT pretty much everything. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm now riding with the S-Fire XC9 shoes. I should say, Mm -hmm. uh, the wide ones. And we got to talk more about that because uh, sort of solved the shoe and bunion issue that I have. And I'm riding with NV525 wheels as well as an NV cockpit. I've ridden it twice and it has been transformative, guys. I have had the most fun, and I'm not exaggerating, that I've had in five years on this bike. It's... You know, more more after first impressions have settled a bit, but here's the thing. My wife, who is riding an identical bike except for, you know, except for color, is saying the exact same thing. We are so stoked about our new mountain bike. And these, so, Fatty, these are the full suspension epics because I know they've specialized right. as taken the stumpy HT and made it the epic HT. Now, you're on full suspension, right? That's right. These are the first full suspension bikes that she and I have had in a, I would say, close to a decade i think that oh. the superfly 100 is the last uh mountain bike that had suspe- a full suspension that i had and, you know, a long time ago uh so things have progressed a lot and i had not realized how much so yeah I, this is something i want to talk about more but i i need to have more than two rides under me yeah. before i'm ready to talk about this but first impressions wow <laughs> so i'm i'm pretty excited about a lot of different things here so huh uh little preview there and i'm quite clearly giddy about my new ride and and people should be i mean you know, you guys heard the specs on this thing it is not a slouch bike <laughs> it no. is it, there's there's definitely some dreaminess to this new bike but right now i'm actually wanting to go all the way to the other end of the time spectrum and talk about cycling origin stories that's my pull for today and, you know, last episode, we talked about our first road bikes. And today, I kind of want to continue that nostalgia theme. But so this would be bikes... where I have to tell everybody that I was bitten by a radioactive spider? <laughs> you, you have superpowers. Now, are you the kind of Spider-Man who can shoot webs? Or are you the kind of Spider-Man who has to actually wear the little ra- wrist bracelet? No, I, I just variations. end up getting stuck to the wall. <laughs> All right. Back to my topic. You are sidetracking us. <laughs> And, and back, we are dangerously, <laughs> dangerously over time here. You know they're going to cut us off, right? Anyway, I, I actually remember my very first ride. Uh, and I should actually say rides very vividly, in spite of the fact that they happened more than 20 years ago. Because these were real fork-in-the-road moments for me. And I want to talk about both of them for a sec. For my first, I had a couple of good friends who were talking about how much this new thing they discovered how how awesome it was and so i went and bought the most expensive mountain bike i could afford which was the 350 dollar bridgestone mb5 uh anyone who has been uh in, in mountain biking for a long time remembers the name bridgestone mb5 means that it was the cheapest version available for me 350 dollars was a lot so my friends took me to the top of a local mountain called Squaw Peak, and from there, a steep, loose ATV downhill with whoop de doos was the trail they picked for my first mountain bike ride. They took off. I did my best to follow, and I was terrified, not having any fun. I remember seeing off the side of the trail a group of people on horses, and then I remember nothing for quite a while. In fact, the next thing I remember, I was walking my bike, and I was quite a ways away, quite a ways further down the trail. And one of the guys who had brought me was walking alongside me, and I wasn't sure how we had got there. And I asked him, what had happened, and where were we? He said, you know, first he laughs, and I'm like, well, what's funny? And he says, I had asked him that question at least half a dozen times. Apparently, right after I had passed the horses, I'd endoed right inside of them, concussion level hard. Mm. And thanks to these horseback riders, uh, some who stayed with me, some who caught up with the rest of my crew, 
I eventually did get to the bottom of that trail and then to an emergency room all on foot. I kept the MB5, but I never rode it again. Eventually it was stolen, and I could not have cared less. So that was my intro to mountain biking <laughs> and to cycling in general. But a few years later, a different group of friends, and co you know, they were also co-workers, they had also caught the mountain biking bug. And I ignored the fact that they were no longer interested in going to lunch, you know, for a year or so. And then I gave in. I bought a Stump Jumper M2 with a soft ride stem. And this time a friend took me on a ride that was mostly uphill with gentle descents. And it was, you know, mostly on unremarkable dirt roads. But it caught my attention. It grabbed my uh, imagination. And before that first ride was over, I knew I would be selling my Mitsubishi Eclipse Turbo and would be buying a much cheaper car so I could afford a nicer bike. I knew that I would be buying clipless pedals, and I knew I'd be buying a Camelback, and I knew that my subscription to Rollerblade Magazine was going to lapse. <laughs> I, and, you know, I, I still don't know exactly what it was I felt, but I was 100% certain that this was it. It was love at first, or I guess in my case, second ride. And... It wasn't just what I was going to do. It was going to be who I was. And that has been the case. And it was not, I mean, clearly 20 plus years on, it was not a personal fad. So that's my, that's my origin story, right? That's, uh, that's how I became, I guess, in a way, who I am. Patrick, do you have a personal first ride wow moment? I actually have two of them. And this is even before I'd gotten a bike. So a buddy of mine was moving away from Memphis and he'd bought a cruiser. And, uh, you know, uh, we bumped into each other right before he left town. He's like, check out this bike I got. And he told me to go take a spin on it. And I went up and back the street and thought, wait, why did I stop doing this? And I got off the bike and kind of forgot about it. I was busy being a drummer in rock and roll bands. Uh, I was trying to get girls to like <laughs> me, not run away from me. And uh, I, not that I was all that successful, mind you. But then like two more years went by and I was in this band and our keyboardist got a bike for Christmas. And he's like, this thing is amazing. You've got to go for a spin on this. And it was a Raleigh Alieska, which was the light, lightest of their three different touring models so it was the one that was kind of closest to being a proper road bike but still had all the brazons for uh racks and whatnot and i went around the block like a mile on that thing and again i got off the bike going wait why why did i stop riding bikes and yeah. that time it took so this was uh 1986 and, uh, you know, Greg LeMond was on, uh, was on TV with winning the tour. And so that was sparking my interest. And I took a bunch of stock, uh, that my grandparents had given me, uh, for my birthdays over the years. And I sold the stock and I went to a bike shop and I bought a specialized expedition, which was, a, a again, a touring bike, hmm. uh, rather than a racing bike. I was much more interested in going places. Um, and so that seemed to be the bike that would be a fit for me. But yeah, man, uh, you know, you get on a bike, the dopamine goes, you know, a little norepinephrine, little endorphins, and <laughs> maybe I need to do more of this. Yeah, yeah. It is quite, uh, it's quite a thing when suddenly you realize that uh, – you've discovered something that you are just going to do. And it's kind of, it's interesting the way it sort of snaps into your head, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The, the, there was a level of clarity for me mm -hmm. that, you know, it wasn't up for discussion. You know, I didn't have second thoughts. It's like, no, nope, more of this now. Yeah. Yeah. And Hottie, mm. uh, how about you? Uh, I know that you, you are a former golfer and you are a baseball guy and you love, I mean, we've heard about, or from, about the Olympics from you. Sports are, I think, a bigger part of your life in general than they ever were of mine. But I'm still interested if there was any kind of aha or revelatory moment for you. Yeah, well, I think to understand the 
aha moment. You got to know kind of the steps that got you there. And, you know, for me, I mean, we all learn to ride at some point and that's fine. But when I got to about 12 years old, that's when I first started going, hey, these these bikes can really do things. I, you know, when I was 12, I'd go get up in the morning, knock out my paper out, grab, this is summertime, grab my fishing pole, hop on my 10 speed with my fishing partner, Dan Hickey, good guy. We'd make the five mile ride to the local reservoir. Those summer rides represented to me freedom and independence. I could go as I please. I could get there and, and back on my own. That to me was cool. But, you know, life goes on. I picked up, obviously I was playing baseball at the time. I later picked up golf. Um, at some point I decided, hey, maybe I'll try this mountain biking thing. Same thing you guys. You saw these people, they're mountain biking, they're riding off road. Hey, that seems kind of cool. I grabbed a mountain bike, bought one, Gary Fisher. Um, so this is kind of like rider moment number two for me. The it was with my sister. We were in Marin County's China Camp, great uh, area to ride. Flowy, tacky, single track made me think, "Hey, I could handle mountain bikes. I'm I'm good at this. I would learn better in the end." That it's actually a lot of skill involved. I wasn't so great, but nonetheless, you know, I was kind of moving. I also remember uh, that day in particular, the comfort of the knee warmers and the feel of dried mud on my lower legs, giving me that that feel of accomplishment. But still, I, I remained in other sports, as you said, fatty golf was still my passion back then. Until I got uh, kind of fed up with golf, first of all, not on, not on the not because I didn't like the game anymore. It was what what was going on around the game. Just too slow of a game, too hard to get get it involved in my life on a on a weekly basis, even. And I was starting to ride a little bit more. And then this happened. Uh, I went on my first really big group ride. It was a charity ride out of Universal City. Uh, there must have been a, a, a thousand people on this ride. I had never drafted, and the pull of the peloton really had this effect on me. I thought, "Wow, <laughs> this is this can happen. I can I can get in here with other people. Uh, suddenly, we're moving along at twenty miles an hour, twenty three miles an hour. I feel like I'm floating. I, I got to have more of this. This drug yeah. is cool. And uh, <laughs> there was also the social aspect. You know, you're you're meeting other people. You're talking to them. You're looking at other bikes." Um, so that, that moment there really launched me, really pushed me away from my prime, what had been my primary sports and into this new thing and to now where it's the thing, uh, for me yet. Do I still like golf? Yeah. I still watch it on TV, baseball. I obsess about baseball. I just don't participate in the sports the way I do with this one. I'm the same way with rollerblading. No, just kidding. (laughs) I don't even, huh? Okay, let's not talk anymore about rollerblading. No, Uh, I I have some. Should (laughs) yeah. Did you have uh, elbow Uh, pads and knee pads, or were you braver than that? I did have elbow pads and knee Mm. pads after a uh, you know I don't know what speed there you know there was nothing to measure speed uh, like like there is now at the time, but on a very fast downhill, I did a hop onto a curb where I did not clear the curb, you know, hit a toe, went down and just, you know, slid downhill for who knows how long. Um, it was, it was pretty bad. So after that, uh, elbow pads and knee pads, but no, it's, I, I actually have to credit, uh, rollerblading, which I did for, I think about four years. Um, I was a rollerblade commuter. I, uh, did eight miles each way each day oh, wow. to get to work with a backpack on. Um, I, uh, I, I went, so when I did start with cycling, I had a great aerobic base mm-hmm. and very good legs. Um, and you know, while I'm sure that the leg motions don't map all that well, it wasn't a huge transition for me to sort of get so that I could ride with my friends pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so it's, and equipment was way less expensive, <laughs> So, yeah, you know, uh, you know, we all come from where we came from, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I still do catch a little bit of grief from time to time from my friends for my rollerblading uh, past. Yeah. Uh, so, Hottie, yeah. I think that's enough of my poll. <laughs> Let's go on to you. What what you got going on this week? Well, we, as we've just kind of alluded to, the three of us are here because of our absolute love of cycling. It is our thing and nothing is even a close second. That's not to say we don't have other interests. And of course, the three of us put family above all personal obsessions, right, guys? But cycling, yeah. of yeah. course, is yeah, a, yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. 
But cycling is a thing that, that consumes us. For Patrick, it's his passion and his profession. For Fatty, it has been a pathway to happiness and better health. And for me, it has fueled the thing my mother taught me years ago, independence and freedom. It's hard to imagine us doing anything else. Or is it? Uh, let's imagine for a second you could trade cycling for something, anything else. What would it be? Would you would you give it the bike for money or fame or power? Could you see yourself doing something else that you simply don't have the talent or guts for? Heli skiing or big wave surfing or summiting Everest. So, guys, let's play a little game here. It's kind of like that game you used to play when you were kids. Remember that one where you'd ask your friend, if you had a million dollars, what would you buy? Same thing here, except the question is, if you could do anything but you had to give up cycling, what would it be? And remember, your answer has to be completely selfish, self-centered. Yes, we know we would want permanent good health for ourselves and our family members, but that, that answer is not good here. I want absolute fantasy, fatty. You have to give up cycling, but you can have anything else or you can do anything else. Go ahead. Um, okay. Well, so that's a great question. And the problem for me would be narrowing it down because I mean, anything you said on that list sounds pretty awesome. Um, in, in addition, I would say excellence at being say at rock climbing, which I've never done, but think is pretty cool mm. running. Uh, I would love to be a good runner, computer programmer, uh, racquetball used to play that a lot. Rollerblading. Rollerblading. <laughs> yeah, sure. Back. If I were if I were the world's best rollerblader, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the ability to play any instrument at all. But uh -huh. there's a problem with each of these, and that would be that I cannot say that I care enough about any of them to trade riding for them because I haven't. And that's a little bit circular reasoning, I know. But I what I'm saying is. I can't say I'd be okay with doing them instead of writing because in every case, you know, I've chosen writing over those things, except racquetball, which I used to be pretty good at, but, mm -hmm. you know, gave up cold turkey along with rollerblading back in the day. But there is one talent, gift, activity, whatever you want to call it, that I care about that I would actually be okay with giving up cycling for, and that is being an amazing writer. See, I... I see myself as a good writer hmm. and I care about writing and I've written a lot and I've put a lot of work into writing and I recognize when I've written something good, but I've read brilliant writing before and I recognize brilliant writing and I'm not brilliant. So yeah, I would give up just about anything to be a genius writer. Hmm. Like if a genie offered me a trade, you know, my lifetime of, of writing, of cycling to be a Dostoevsky level writer you bet I would take it. I would take it right now today. Hmm. And that said, in the absence of magical trade-granting genies, a lifetime's worth of fun, good memories on my bikes has been a pretty decent consolation prize. So that's mine, hmm. writing. All right. Well, Patrick's a writer and a writer, and he's good at both. But come on, Patrick, push the boundaries of fantasy here. You got to give up the bike, but you can do or have anything. Oh, this was actually surprisingly easy for me. I, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm going to be a writer no matter what. Right. Okay. I'm going to be writing about something. But if I couldn't be a cyclist anymore, I would leave California. I would move to northern Vermont and I would take up Nordic skiing again. Huh. Boom. Heartbeat. Really? Done. Yes. Yeah. Wow. You I miss. Almost, yeah. I missed Nordic skiing. I was a Nordic ski instructor. I mean, I, I went full rabbit hole on that action. My cycling friends in Western Massachusetts got me into skate skiing. And it's funny because I actually took skating up, skate skiing up, what's also known as freestyle. I took that up before I actually took up uh, diagonal, the traditional, mm -hmm. you know, kick and glide style, uh, like Nordic track. Uh, I was never all that much into diagonal, but skating, I loved the way I loved cycling. And so my last couple of winters in Massachusetts, I had upwards of 80 days on the snow each of those winters. My last winter, I had 96 days on the snow. And so when I moved to California... I mean, I literally haven't skated since I moved to California, not once. Hmm. Uh, part of that is I know I could like go out and do it right now, 
but I wouldn't move. I don't have the upper body that I used to have. Photos of me from, say, 1995, I look like a different dude almost because I had shoulders, I had lats, I had triceps, all this stuff that's utterly vestigial on me now. <laughs> and so, you know, when I think about the cost of living in California and other challenges like that, and then I look at, you know, well, where could I live to do the thing that I love? You know, not without interruption, because I don't really want 12 months a year of winter, but a good long winter can be had in northern Vermont. So I would just move to Burlington and be done with it. Hmm. Okay. so How about you, Hadi? Oh, mine? Well, since this is a childish game, and it really is, I'm going to go back to my <laughs> childhood for my answer. My first ambition was as a youngster was to be a major league baseball player, and I was pretty good. The problem was some of my teammates were a lot better. In fact, three guys I played with when I was 11 and 12 went on to play in the major leagues. That's almost <laughs> wow. Un- yeah, I know. That's almost unheard of in a town of 10,000. So, major league baseball would be my cycling trade-off, but not as a player. My answer is going to combine some of my childhood fantasy with some adult reality. As a grown-up, I've been pretty good at managing on the fly and making decisions. So, My life away from cycling would be as a baseball manager or a general manager with a lean towards manager, the field manager, because they get to wear the uniform and spit on national TV. So that's me. Manager (laughs) of a major league baseball team. Fantasy. Ambitions here. Ambitions. Spitting on TV. Right. (laughs) Life goals. Pass the sunflower seeds. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. I, I'm not certain that if uh, a, a genie granted you a wish that being a baseball manager, if I'm going to accept that, I want you to go back and think about that a little more. But <laughs> you want something? We'll, we'll take it for now. Oh, you want something real that's attainable? Huh? No, no. I I think that's too attainable. I th- I mean, I bet it's you not could outlandish go and, enough. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you mean? Patty wants to be a writer, and you want to be a cross country skier. You guys already no, I, are those practically. Well, I'm I'm a writer, but I'm not Dostoevsky level. I mean, it's there's there's several orders of magnitude of greatness that I'm looking at. I want to be one of the greatest writers who's ever lived. Uh, okay, okay, that saying. is fantasy. Okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> See, I, I didn't mention I, that because I'm still planning on doing that. Okay, um, I, I'm not going to say anything mean right now because you are a good writer. <laughs> but um, Patrick. And yeah. I wish you best of luck in your in your Nordic career as well. <laughs> so, all right, guys, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, Patrick's got an interview with the Fit Chick about the hardest race she's ever done, and then Paceline picks. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for cyclists. They do this by qualifying endurance athletes through quizzes that demonstrate their knowledge of and adherence to a healthy lifestyle. Health IQ follows applicants all the way through the process from when they submit interests to starting applications, from going through underwriting to policy in force. The policy is underwritten by one of our top partners, an insurer. Health IQ's underwriting advantages include family history, reducing your chance of being penalized for adverse family health history if you are otherwise healthy, low resting heart rate. Most carriers will penalize people if their heart rate is too low. We help them recognize that this is a sign of your excellent health and fitness. The Health IQ Advantage is their unique mortality model on the health conscious, and they have lower rates for health conscious people, just like a good driver gets savings on auto insurance. And they have unique underwriting calculations that replace BMI with waist to hip ratio and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paceline. And the paceline is back. Hadi and I have taken our polls, and now, Patrick, it is your turn. Yeah, guys. So a couple of days ago, I got on the phone with Celine Yeager, actually Skype, to talk nutrition, training, and the calculus of difficulty versus reward in the events we choose to do. Celine's nickname, as you know, is the Fit Chick, and it's one I'd say she is pretty well earned. 
any reader of Bicycling, Runner's World, or a host of other Rodale publications, okay, now owned by Hearst, but still Rodale, uh, will know her work. I don't personally know any other fitness writer, and I know a lot of fitness writers, who has covered more territory than Celine has. We ended up spending an hour and a half on the phone, um, oh, but awesome. there was no way to ask the question that I had and come back with a six, uh, ask the questions I had and come back with a six minute interview. So the conversation was too interesting to dice up into itty bitty sound bites. And instead, what I've done is pulled one small excerpt of that interview that we can run here. And then sometime in the not too distant future, uh, we'll have the full interview as a paceline tandem but awesome here's celine talking about some of the races she's done one of the things that i was really in, uh curious to discuss with you you know you've done an incredibly vast array of different events like you mentioned cape epic uh yeah. you've done an iron man you've done all sorts of different stuff um and so my first question is you know given all this crazy stuff you've done what would you single out as the hardest thing you've done? Huh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I've done I've done a lot of a lot of things. I mean, I've done I did Ironman Kentucky and then 6 weeks later went to Ironman Kona. And Kona was probably one of the mentally hardest things I've done. Um Cape Epic was super hard. A lot of those stage races are obviously very hard. I've I've, I've done a, a bunch of them. But the only one, I mean, it's like anything, uh if you put in the training, the results follow, and even though you are always going to go through some dark passages during a race of that length, you you can you can pretty much do anything. Uh, honestly, Dirty Kansas is the only thing that I have ever really wanted to quit. <laughs> I, I didn't quit, but it's the only time, only event where I've ever really seriously felt like stopping. It, it's very hard. Yeah. Wow. Two hundred yeah. miles of that is you get so dark. Somewhere around 165. I've done it twice. Yeah. Um, and it's about the same time every time. This past time I, I had a the, the, I had a just literal meltdown from from the heat that happened at that point in the day. It's it's a you get to a real dark place and you have to just find your way through it. But yeah, it's 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 interesting because a lot of people are like, oh, it's harder than Iron Man. Well, it took me longer to do both Dirty Kansas races by hours. Um, than it did to do either of my Ironman races. And it's, you're on the, you're doing the same thing. I mean, yeah, running the marathon is very, very difficult, but if you've trained for it, you can do it. And at least like you've swam, you're on, you're on your bike, you're running, you're doing different things. You're not, you're not in the same position on the same landscape in the same elements, you know, for over 200 miles. It's, 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 it's way more difficult than I think most people who haven't done it would, would know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because so this past year I did the half pint, right? Mm -hmm. Only a hundred, <laughs> but I was hanging out with Yuri Hoswald and some other folks who did the 200 and, um, you know, after the event, they all talked about the darkness that came, you know, right about three quarters of the way through, yep, you know, absolutely. somewhere from 140 to 160, yep. you know, you, you, yeah, it, the darkness falls and you don't come and out. It's dark. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I find that pretty curious. I've never wanted to do a double century until, well, now I want to do dirty cans. I want to do the whole thing. So <laughs> next year, I think. All right. So yes, that was, uh, Celine Yeager and we will have the entire interview coming up. Uh, I don't know, another week or two, I hope. Awesome. Yeah. I look forward to hearing that. Uh, Celine is an incredibly interesting and, I mean, insightful person. I mean, anytime I've ever had a chance to talk with her, and that's just once or twice, uh, you learn a lot and you come away liking her a lot. Yeah. So that portion of our conversation brings up what I think is a pretty interesting question. I mean, what's the toughest event you've ever done? And this has also been on my mind because of doing Fish Rock last weekend. I can't recall another 70-ish mile ride that I've done that took as long or was as hard. I mean, my knees hurt at the end. It was so hard. So, you know, I think if you've got a, a reasonably broad range of experience, it's not an easy question to answer. For me, I know, you know, there was the toughest crit I've ever done, the toughest mountain bike race I've ever done, the toughest tour. 
They were all difficult, but they were all differently difficult. So the question on my mind, you know, was how hard Fish Rock was last weekend compared to the other things I did. But that's hmm. that's just my personal question. Hottie, you and I have done a lot of the same events. What about you? I'm curious what yours might be. Well, um, the easy answer would be Leadville. I mean, especially 2013 for me, that was a very difficult not only ride but week. Uh, I trained really hard to break nine hours, which I did. But that week, I found a crack in my bike and had to get a bike overnighted to me just to be able to right. ride oh, wow. the event. So that yeah. was a highly, highly stressful week. Very difficult. Uh, mile for mile. Um, and Fatty will probably tell you this too. Crusher and the Tusher, which I did for the first time last summer. Very difficult. Not a long day, but just two two-hour climbs. I'll leave it at that. I mean, it is just terribly, terribly difficult. But I'd have to say my second Belgian waffle ride, my second and last one that I did. I mean, Michael Marks, when I did the ride, I think this was 2015 or something like that. You know, he was on this quest to to build and put on the hardest ride in the United States. Um, I rode in the first wave, and this was the first year he put out waves. He did it by categories, and somehow I was a category two at the time. So I got in that first group. And that meant I went off with the fast guys. We got all the police escorts. We made all the lights. We kept moving. We didn't have to stop one bit. I did the whole ride, which is like 140 miles, I guess, and never unclipped. Never came to a full stop. It was six and a half, almost seven hours of continuous riding. I took feeds on the fly. I urinated twice while rolling down the road. It was all I could handle in a day's work. And thank God there were waffles and ice cream at the end of that day. So I, I guess a nod to the second BWR I did. Wow. Okay, Fatty. Man. How about you? See, I'm, I'm having a hard, hard time teasing apart what made for a difficult ride versus what made for a painful ride. And the distinction for me is the most painful rides I've ever done are kind of self-inflicted. You know, my, my first guess at most difficult ride was probably 20, well, for sure, was the 25 hours of Frog Hollow, which I did solo, single speed, rigid. Um, that was stupid. Uh, <laughs> not the solo part, not the single speed part. Both of those, lots of other people did. Doing it rigid, in, you know, in the St. George uh you know, chunky, rocky uh, trail out there. That was just dumb. I had to have my wrist taped up about 18 hours in, and I didn't enjoy the final six hours at all, or no, seven hours, because it's 25 hours. Uh, they have to be special. They do it during the time change. Um, <clears throat> that that left me so messed up, and uh, that my wrists have never been the same. But, you know, that was th- maybe the hardest ride I've ever done, just because of my wrist pain. Um but, you know, if I take that out, the, the stupid part where, you know, I, I should have had front suspension there at least um, and say the, the the ride that perhaps I'm most proud of in terms of difficulty, that would be Salt to Saint. Um, I did that with uh, with my wife, Lisa, the Hammer, uh, which is from Salt Lake City to St. George, Utah. And that is, I believe, 520 miles. I'm not exactly sure on the distance. Four, <laughs> it's be, it, it, and uh, she is the first and only woman to have ever done that solo. Uh, that took us 28 hours, and we it, uh, we each had a time trial bike as well as a regular road bike, and would switch between the two, uh, working together, you know, drafting off each other. And she was a trooper. Um, that was incredibly difficult. You know, sleep deprivation toward the end was tough. Uh, the writing was tough. I hated uh, my specialized shiv by the end, in spite of the fact that it's a very effective machine for uh, rolling on the flats, especially if there are two of you on aero bikes. You know, people, you know, you get the, sort of the time trial effect. And I was just incredibly proud of Lisa for knocking that thing out. And it's something that literally no other woman has done. Uh, even to this day. So, you know, it, it's pretty, you know, that was hard. It was rewarding. And she and I actually have talked about doing it again this year. So who knows? We think we can knock a few hours off. Uh, we've learned a lot about uh, w- wasting time 
uh, and, you know, sitting and, you know, stopping and eating. I think we probably could knock at least an hour, maybe two hours off. So it was, it was difficult, but uh, we kind of have the kind of curious about doing it again. So how about that one? Wow. That sounds impressive. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys ever want, if you guys ever want to see uh, somebody have a very, very tough day, go ahead and watch the documentary "24 Hours Solo." It's actually the story of Chris Etoff, and he was going for I think his seventh 24-hour solo uh, mountain bike world championship. He got beat that hmm. day or that night, that day, by a guy out of um, Australia. And I was just trying to look up his name because his name didn't come to me, but. Um, the man who beat him uh, literally almost died on the course in the process. He ended up in the hospital instead of up on the podium at the end. So rent 24-hour show wow. and watch mm. somebody have a very difficult day. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's funny because I'm still not sure what from my past I would list as, you know, kind of that creme de la creme of hard stuff. Uh, how do you've done, you know, what? what was briefly the son of the death ride uh-huh. uh, or, you know, they later changed it to the ride of the immortals. Uh, the first time I tried that, I didn't finish it. The second time I did, but I was a wreck at the end of that. Also, I just ran across my coverage from last year's uh, grasshopper, the super sweet water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've done longer rides in some ways, you know, uh, more uh, climbs with more climbing per mile, but I just remember what a complete wreck I was at the end of that event last year. And that's what I've got coming up this Saturday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, that's enough for me. Uh, what do you say? Paceline picks? Paceline picks sounds good, but first I'm going to correct myself. I, you know, you heard me vacillating on the distance on that, and I just did a quick look up. And when the difference is so great, I have to correct myself. The Salt to Saint is 423 miles. So that is the longest ride that I have done. And, that's, you know, and that's I'm still more than enough. <laughs> it is. It is 28 hours, uh, you know, essentially nonstop on a bike, uh, whether it's road bike or whatever. Oh, man. Oof. That is. Uh, that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. So let's do it again. But first, let's do the picks. And, of course, that's the part of the show where we talk about stuff we want to talk about and that we also just couldn't really justify making into a full-length segment. I've got the first one today, guys. So I, like most riders, carry a phone um, with you know pretty much every ride. And I carry mine in my center jersey pocket, partly to stay connected and partly to take photos. The thing is, though, especially if you wear gloves, getting to an iPhone and, you know, it takes a, takes a few seconds at the very best, right? And getting to the point where you can take a photo is, you know, a few more steps and a few more seconds. And sometimes it's too many steps and you say, ah, never mind, because it's, you know, you, the, the moment is past. And also there's a dexterity issue, and if, especially if you're wearing gloves. A few days ago, though, I figured something out. At least with the recent iPhones, when you want to take a photo, you don't have to press any buttons at all to get to the point where you are ready to take, you know, press the shutter. You don't have to unlock your phone. You don't have to touch a screen. Don't no home button, anything. All you do is take out your phone and say, hey, Siri, take a picture. The phone goes into camera mode. No unlocking, no button, no starting an app or switching to an app required. You then use the volume button as the shutter, and you're done. So you can get more specific, too. You can say, hey, Siri, take a selfie. And that starts the camera, but with the front-facing lens active, take a a selfie. Once again, use the volume buttons as the shutter. You can also say, hey, Siri, take a video, or hey, Siri, take a slow-motion video if you're going to catch someone doing a cool drop or something like that. A few caveats here. You do have to have listen for Hey Siri enabled on your iPhone. You have to allow for Siri when the phone is locked. And you need to have an iPhone 6S or newer. So you might need to spend a a minute or two getting everything set up in your settings. And then once you've done that, uh, day to day, uh, you've got a really fast, easy way to access your camera whenever you're writing. So 
I don't use voice control for anything else on my phone except for to set my alarm every night when I go to bed because I kind of feel like a dope using it in public. But trust me, this is a fast, easy photo-taking strategy. Give it a try. That's my pick. Oh, man, I would have done that this past weekend. There was a dude in a devil's suit on Fish Rock Road. I wanted to get a picture of him, but I couldn't get the camera to respond uh, on my phone as I was riding by. Oh, wish I, I'd known I, about I that. Do- and I got to say that since I started my segment by saying, hey, Siri, like a million times, <laughs> it is recorded like everything I've said for the last three minutes. It's transcribed. <laughs> it. <laughs> so, yeah. And you can hear a beeping. It's I like, found something on the web about like one million times. It is recorded <laughs> like everything I've said for the last three minutes is transcribed. It. Check it out. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks, Siri. <laughs> what a gal. Okay. I think that that's enough for me and for my good friend, Siri. Patrick? Yeah. Guys, I've tried every single tubeless tire sealant on the market. And my experience has been that the narrower tire, the narrower the tire, the harder it is to get to seal because tire size is inversely proportional to tire pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So Finish Line has come out with a new tire sealant called, obviously enough, Tubeless Tire Sealant. No fancy names, just straight and to the point. I was sent a couple of bottles of it recently. It's ammonia-free and latex-free. And it also includes this stuff called FiberLink technology, which is small Kevlar fibers, uh, which are uh, meant to help seal any cuts. Not only was I able to seal up some 35 millimeter gravel tires on my very first try, something that I have not managed before, but I also got a pair of Shimano Ultegra tubeless wheels to seal with 32 millimeter tires for the very first time ever. Previously, I swear, I had not been able to get these wheels to seal at all. They were driving me nuts. Uh, and, you know, I... I was like, okay, this is my last shot. If this doesn't work, I'm giving up. And, you know, not only did did it work, but I'm impressed because this is said to last the life of the tire. Obviously, I've got less than a week in on this stuff, uh, so I don't really know that to be true yet. But, you know, you can at least say, well, the tire is likely to last longer because there's no ammonia seeping into the casing. Um, And, you know, there's no latex to dry out. So... Uh, it's, you know, from that standpoint, it's pretty promising comes in five sizes. There's a little four ounce bottle that you could do two road tires with, but it goes all the way up to a huge pump, you know, shop size with a pump on it. Um, the stuff is way easier to use than orange seal or slime. And, Mm. you know, actually I found it easy to clean up. Um, you know, I spilled some on the concrete and it wiped right up and didn't leave behind an odd color. Uh, the the weird thing is, like, I'm so excited about this that I'm looking forward to setting up another set of wheels uh, sometime later this week. Awesome. So that's Finish Line's tubeless tire sealant. Yeah. Again. It, all right. Let's make sure we get a link to that in the show notes. Hottie, you've got the final pick of the pace line. All right. A few shows ago, just prior to recording, I was on Skype with Fatty talking about a front wheel I had relaced in hopes of improving its spoke clearance relative to my disc brake caliper. But my little experiment had gone horribly wrong. Oh, I created more space between the spokes and the flat mount SRAM force caliper, but I had also created another problem. I described it to Fatty like this i brought it home i get on the bike and i ride it down the street and i grab the front brake and it starts howling at me (laughs) like that i mean i'm like oh my god what the hell is that all this brake noise i'm like what the frig is this Uh, apparently the relays had created some kind of crazy harmonics under braking and now every time i grab my front brake dogs in the neighborhood would start barking at me the wheels in question are a set of Revol 29ers. It's not their fault. Carbon wheels. I had purchased them to lighten up the hardtail. They had made it around Leadville tw- uh, two and a third times and completed one crusher, but now had no future until a new gravel bike entered my life. The Fat Chance crisscross is a steel bike, so I thought, what a better way to lighten it up than with some carbon wheels that I already owned. I got all the end caps necessary for conversion, mounted up some 40s, 
drop the wheels in, and whoa, wait a second. Those front calipers, those rather those spokes and that front caliper are coming awfully close. That made me nervous. So I got that wild idea that by changing the way the spokes cross, I could pull them away from the caliper. I got a wheel builder to do it for me, but as you heard, I ended up with a much bigger problem. So I had the spokes put back to the original cross pattern, wrote Roval, who told me not to worry about the tight clearance, and everything has been great since. And I'm glad I did not get frustrated and give up on the whole idea. The easier thing to do would have been to just buy a new set of wheels. But I hate not getting the most out of gear I have, especially gear that cost about two grand. So my Paceland pick is repurposing those old pair of bars, that seven-speed derailleur, those semi-worn-out knobbies. Don't put them on eBay or Craigslist. Hold on to them. You never know. They could find new life. Guys, I've done this more than with just a set of nice carbon wheels. I took a well-used Durace 10-speed Grupo, gave it new life on my choach. The bars on my gravel bike have been on two other bikes. I keep tires around just so I can have something for the trainer when and if I use a trainer. So recycle, I say. It's cycling. It's green. Reuse. That's my pick. And good advice, not just for bikes either. Use uh, use stuff in more than one way, more than one time. Big fan. All right, guys. I think that that is a wrap for the show. One last reminder, find us on Apple Podcasts. Take a moment to give us a five-star rating and write a review. Tell your friends about us for crying out loud. Play us loud from your car stereo the next time you're waiting for the group ride to assemble. All of those things are good ways to spread the word about the pace line. For Heidi and Patrick, I'm Fatty. Thanks for listening to episode 107 of The Pace Line. Hey, we do pretty good in Canada. We are every moose's favorite podcast. Mm.